Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Solomon Ashams in Johannesburg, South Africa and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we start our build-up to the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Today, we assess the chances of Nigeria and Senegal. Also, Stuart begins a series on Africa's history at the World Cup. In 1954, the 16 teams were 12 from Europe, 3 from Latin America and 1 from Asia. That's coming up later. So we're focusing for the next few weeks here on Planet Sport Football Africa on the 2018 FIFA World Cup. The tournament in Russia is about three weeks away now. And as we build up to the tournament, today we'll assess the chances of the two West African teams. That's Nigeria and Senegal. Well, firstly, Senegal are at the World Cup for the second time, having reached the quarter-finals in 2002, beating France in the opening match with players like El Hadji Jouf and Kalilou Fadiga. I thought that they were going to win the Africa Cup of Nations last year, but they lost in the quarter-finals to Cameroon on penalties, uh, with players like Sadio Mane, Cheku Kouyaté and Kalidou Koulibaly. They have plenty of quality. Senegal are in Group H with Colombia, Japan and Poland. So, first of all, Solomon, how good is this Senegal team? I, I definitely feel that uh, Senegal has a good team, though they've been underperforming, like you rightly mentioned, in the last years, in the, in the last edition of AFCON. It's good to see Senegal again back at the World Cup. It's been a long time they were away outside the World Cup. The last time they were at the World Cup, they played so well and created a new benchmark for, for African football teams. But uh, Senegal, for me, the problem had always been they have some great players, but they've never been able to function as a team. That unity and that, uh, you know, that fluidity that a team carries uh, and, and play together, uh, they, they have lost it. But it's good. They have uh, Aliou Sese, who is the, the coach. He was a player himself. He was part of that great uh, team in 2002 who got to the final of the AFCON and also to the quarterfinal of the World Cup. So he's going to bring a lot of experience. He's a local coach with a lot of uh, players. The 23 players that have been called up, there's a lot of experience there. The defense where you have the very experienced um, Khalidou Kolibali for Napoli. There's Lamine Gassama. There is Kara Mboji. So a lot of experience there. There's also in the midfield Idrissa Gueye. There is uh, the captain, uh, Koyate, uh, who we know so well from the English Premier League uh, uh, for West Ham United. There is uh, Sadio Mane, obviously, and he's going to bring a lot of experience uh, that he has gained from Liverpool in the last few years. And there's Musa Konate, there's Musa So, there's Kaide Balde, all playing in the, in, in the forward uh, uh, positions. I think for me, as long as they, they will play together, I think Senegal would hopefully get into the next round but we need to see them playing for each other. Uh, so Senegal is a good team overall. I, I think for me, they, they're one of the top African teams because they, they have a balance. They have players with uh, different experiences in different clubs and, and also over the years, they have uh, quite a lot of experiences and they also know that the expectation is high on them. But a big plus for them is they have a coach uh, who had played at the World Cup, who have captained the Senegal Lions to the World Cup and, and then they created a new benchmark and I think that would go a long way in, in really helping them. Yes, Aliou Cisse, now the coach, uh, was part of that Senegal team of 2002. 
And uh, Solomon, what do you make of that group? Because you'd have to think that Colombia are going to take one of the top two places and progress to the second round there. I think uh, Colombia definitely, uh, they look like likely one of the first teams that would get out of that group. But, but I would not even consider just Colombia. You know, I, I think uh, Japan also have a equal chance and Poland also has a equal chance. Uh, sometimes for me, I feel Colombia plays uh, so well in certain games and not so well in, in certain games. Poland played against Nigeria uh, in a warm-up game uh, a couple of months ago and they lost to Nigeria. They have a feel of uh, playing against Africans. And then Japan, Japan is that, that team that is not an individual team is is a team that plays together uh, and you have to break them each and each and every player for you to be able to win against them because they they are there playing as a unit but i feel strongly feel that senegal has a good chance of not in first place i think they have a good chance in getting out of that group in second place uh, if they are able to really be consistent they're able to make sure that defensively they they contain uh, their opponents and and make sure they don't leak goals then they're going to be able to get uh, you know into the next round hope so uh, okay then to nigeria it's a sixth world cup appearance for the super eagles twice they failed to get past the group stage the other three appearances have all resulted in second round exits And you'd have to say, Solomon, that really they should have reached the quarterfinals by now and that Nigeria have underachieved at the World Cup. Uh, And Nigeria, Steve, is the only team from Africa that was at the last World Cup in 2014 that is back at the World Cup in 2018. All the other teams that were at the World Cup in 2014 from Africa, only Nigeria is is back at the World Cup. So, uh, you know, we must say congratulations to Nigeria. Nigeria has done a great job consistently representing Africa, but consistently performing at the World Cup, which is the big tournament. I don't think so. Uh, with all the great players that they have. I think for me, that the achievement of Nigeria is due to a lot of factors from lack of preparation to, uh, you know, logistics to uh, football administration and all that kind of stuff. But but I'm glad that Nigeria has played a couple of great friendly games. They've been keeping themselves busy and there's quite a lot of, you know, young players coming in and like Kalechi, like uh, Alex Iwobi, uh, young players coming in and, and really performing. The coach is not uh, afraid to, to bring young players and which I think is is a great thing. So Nigeria were the first African team to qualify this time. They're in Group D with Argentina, Croatia and Iceland. Amazingly, they've been drawn against Argentina in the group stage at four previous World Cups, losing to Argentina each time. So what are you expecting this time from Nigeria, Solomon? I'm really expecting Nigeria to do its best to get into the round of 16. Last November, Nigeria played a friendly against Argentina and won 4-2. So just maybe this would be Nigeria's uh, a chance to win against Lionel Messi. This would be Nigeria's chance to win in a competitive game against Argentina or probably even get a point out of it uh, because now they have a new sort of confidence. Uh, so, you know, we should expect a point at least uh, from the games against Argentina. Uh, and now hoping that Messi is not going to turn up in that game. Uh, Croatia, and they have great players. If they turn up for a game and they, 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 they really play well, they, they're definitely going to win. So Nigeria is really going to struggle there. And then there's Iceland, a European team that of recent, they've come of age and from a very small country of just about 300,000 people and they're playing some great football there. I think each game for Nigeria, that is really going to be difficult. But we hope to see Nigerian players, Mikel Obi in the midfield taking charge. We hope to see players like Kenneth Omerwa in defence, really playing well. Leon Balogun in defence. We, we hope to see all that. And if we see that, then hopefully Nigeria 
Nigeria is uh, going to be back into the round of 16 again. Thanks, Solomon. Now, one new thing at the Russia World Cup will be the introduction of the video assistant referee technology. Back in 1966, England beat West Germany in the World Cup final 4-2 after extra time. And Jeff Hurst scored a hat-trick. He's the only person ever to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. There's been debate for years and years as to whether his second goal, which was England's third, actually crossed the line or not. So Hurst would have a special interest in this technology. Our European football expert Stuart Weir spoke to Jeff Hurst and asked for his views on the video assistant referee and technology in football in general. From the beginning, I was extremely in favour of goal line technology and I, I often absolutely totally convinced that was, that was the way to go, absolutely. Subject to it not taking too long, in line with other sports where it actually, actually can be quite an enjoyable part of the sport to, to, to see whether that ball is over the line or not. And, and everybody's aware of what's going on in the stadium. And I often joke that had they had video technology in my time, it would have proved quite clearly my my goal was well over the line. But having said that, going on to the new this new VAR, it it, it, it at the moment is it's messy. I don't mean Lionel Messi, I mean yeah. messy, <laughs> where there's not a lot of communication. There's not a lot of communication to the fans. It seems to be a, a bit long-winded. So I'm not as it stands at the moment way things are moving with it it's not working out particularly successfully and i think they need to improve it and not not to go too far with it that, that's my view so that's sir jeff hurst who scored a hat-trick for england in the 1966 world cup final so he's not a fan of the video assistant referee technology i should say that at this world cup fans in the stadium will be told what's happening when the video assistant referee is being used uh, but Stuart, the VAR technology seems to have been welcomed in most of Europe, but there seems to be a lot of resistance there in England. I saw a survey of 20 fans recently, one for each of the Premier League clubs, on whether they supported the video assistant referees being implemented in the Premier League. And I was surprised by the results because four were in favour, 13 were against, and three were uncertain. And the kind of comments they made or it was a fiasco when they tried it in the FA Cup games. There are too many delays. It takes the excitement out of the game. It disrupts the game and undermines the referee. It's a good idea, but the implementation has thrown up insurmountable problems. And I'm dreading the World Cup because VAR is going to ruin it. Strong words there, and I find that really interesting. Mm. And uh, Stuart, the video assistant referee was used in last weekend's FA Cup final, Chelsea beating Manchester United. Uh, probably, though, this the last game for Chelsea manager Antonio Conte. Yes, I think VAR was used in the cup final, but it was very discreet. Uh, we did see the referee just touching his ear when Sanchez goal was given offside but I think that was a fairly clear offside and it wasn't too difficult uh, for the officials. But you know, Steve, it was entirely predictable that Chelsea would beat Manchester United in the FA Cup final, as 13 of the previous 16 Cup finals had been won by the team whose name came first alphabetically. So now you know. Incidentally, it was also the second time that Chelsea had beaten Manchester United 1-0 in the Cup final, previously 2007, and that's never happened before either. 
Oh, it was not an exciting game. And when I tell you that the player who made most passes in the game was Theobald Courtois, the Chelsea goalkeeper, it shows you what a negative game it was. With Romelu Lukaku not fit to start for Manchester United, although he did come off the bench, Manchester United set themselves up in a really defensive formation and often had no player at all in the opposition penalty area. And with a midfield of Matic, Herrera and Pogba, they were seemingly out to stop Chelsea rather than attack themselves. Last year, of course, Chelsea lost the FA Cup final to Arsenal and Victor Moses got a red card. But this year, the Nigerian lasted 90 minutes and got a cup winner's medal. On the other hand, Manchester United's Ivorian defender Eric Bailly seems to have fallen completely out of favour and was an unused substitute while Jones and Smalling played. And it is rumoured, in fact, that Jose Mourinho may want to replace his entire back four for next season, so um, I'm not quite sure where that leaves Eric. But despite the victory, there is speculation that Antonio Conte will be dismissed as Chelsea manager, mainly because the club has failed to secure Champions League football next year. But the managerial merry-go-round has become ridiculous this season, Steve, with 10 Premier League clubs not having the manager they started the season with, and that number could easily drop to 7 or 8, as there is speculation about some other changes. And Eddie Howe at Bournemouth is now the longest-serving Premier League manager, and he's only been there for five years. Incidentally, there are an amusing twist to the Chelsea story because uh, owner Roman Abramovich uh, cannot actually come to Britain at the moment because his visa has expired and so far the British government has not renewed it. And this may be partly because uh, relations between Russia and Britain are at an all-time low at the moment. So that's just a slightly amusing twist to the situation on Antonio Conte's future. Interesting. So, Stuart, Unai Emery is taking over from Arsene Wenger as Arsenal manager. Is he the right man for the job? Well, it's really quite intriguing because no one would have thought that Arsene Wenger was the right man for the job uh, when he came. It seems quite strange, if the speculation is correct, that Mikel Arteta was going to be uh, the choice. And he, of course, is an ex-Arsenal player, coaching in the Premier League, knows the club, whereas Una Emery is completely new to English football. He's worked only in Spain, France and Russia. Apparently, he doesn't speak much English. I read that he has been successful at winning championships, but has never done very much in the Champions League. So one could say he'll fit in quite well at Arsenal there. Of course, he will be joining an Arsenal side, which, in my opinion, needs a major overhaul to the squad. And uh, it'll be very difficult to follow Wenger. And... I do think the fact that he doesn't speak English and has no experience of the Premier League could be a major stumbling block for him. And again, you know, Manchester United had the reputation of being a club that was very loyal to the manager, keeping Alex Ferguson for such a long time. But then they've gone through three managers since that. And I wonder, you know, when a new manager, perhaps Emery, comes in, whether Arsenal will show the same loyalty to him they did to Wenger, or whether they will give him, say, a couple of years and expect him to have turned things around radically. In that case, you know, he may not last too long either. Yes, we'll have to see. And uh, Stuart, the final squads for the World Cup must be named by the 4th of June, but uh, quite a bit of team news in already. 
Well, there have been some interesting and controversial choices as countries begin to announce their World Cup squad. And actually, there's probably been more talk about players who have not been included. Uh, for example, England have not included Joe Hart, their number one goalkeeper for several years. But, of course, Hart has struggled at West Ham this season and for much of the season uh, has not been the first choice and he's paid the price. Similarly, Adam Lallana, Liverpool and Jack Wiltshire, Arsenal have also been omitted, possibly because of issues over fitness, but it does mean that England has chosen a squad without very much flair. Now, when Alexandre Lacazette signed for Arsenal this season, Olivier Giroud was surplus to requirement and went off to Chelsea. Ironically, Giroud has now become a cup winner. He's included in the French World Cup squad, while Lacazette has been omitted, along with Anthony Martial. And I think that's really interesting because for Lacazette and Martial, they've signed for big clubs, but haven't played a lot. And I think that this has certainly damaged their international prospects. And the Brazil squad omits the Valencia goalkeeper Neto, the Monaco right-back Fabinho, the Juventus left-back Alexandro, who is supposedly a target of uh, Jose Mourinho, David Luiz of Chelsea doesn't surprise me greatly when one remembers some of his games in the last World Cup. And Lucas Moura of Tottenham. And, you know, I think that Brazil know what they're doing, but probably most of those five would have made a lot of other international squads. Yeah, so many good players that uh, Brazil have to call upon. Well, thanks very much, Stuart. Uh, This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And you can download our app and listen to the show anytime. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Once you've downloaded, you can listen to the show anytime on the app and access past programmes too in our archive. You can also listen on our website, planetsportfootballafrica.com, and our Twitter handle is at planetsportfa. Still to come, the first part of Stuart's series on the history of Africa at the FIFA World Cup. Now, though, we turn to social media. And last week we asked her what can be done to make life after football better for players. Many African footballers have hit hard times after retiring from the game. Some live in poverty or sickness, while a few have become successful as coaches or as business people, but sadly they are in the minority. Now on last week's show we heard about a conference that was held in Cameroon on the transition of footballers into life after their playing days are over. So we asked what do you think can be done to give our players a better life when they end their career as players. On Facebook, as Sam Chequel says, most of them spend a lot on non-productive activities as they want to expose their wallets to the world as players. They shouldn't act before thinking, says Sam. On WhatsApp, as Sil Tucker in The Gambia says, I think education is paramount in the sense that they must understand that they have to manage their careers in football and that must impact their personal lives. Secondly, says Sil, as they pay taxes, they should contribute to a retirement scheme. And Gibril Mansarai, also in the Gambia, agrees, saying they should have something like a pension scheme for the players. At least every month or week when they're paid, it should go into an account for their retirement. Patrick Mwamlima is in Malawi. I've also been troubled as to why most of our once great players hit a slump after retiring, says Patrick. 
but I observe that poor planning and lack of guidance, low educational level, and the want to live high-class lives has contributed to this problem. I'd suggest that these guys should have lessons in life after football so as to prepare them mentally, socially and financially so that they can manage themselves after retirement. Alassana Drame in The Gambia thinks the best way to prepare for a career after football is to take steps before making a career in the beautiful game. I suggest that players at youth level shouldn't abandon school until they've graduated so that they can have the tools to build a career in other areas besides playing football, says Alassana. Anyone can start with business after a footballing career, depending on your capital investment, but to be on track, the key is education. Mohamed in the Gambia makes an interesting point. The question is, when they were playing in their football career, what did they do to make their future bright and to help make Africa great, says Mohamed. Many don't want to associate themselves as coming from Africa. They should have sound motivation and be involved in the interests of their nations during their football careers. Because if they do, I strongly believe that after their careers in football, whenever they come back to their home nations, there'll be space for them to engage and to keep their life happy and away from poverty. We always welcome your voice notes on WhatsApp. And here's Ebri Macante. They should pursue education. You can see some European players, they will continue their education and also with their footballing career. But here in Africa, what hurts most of the, the players is that most of them concentrate more on football aspect than academic. And for footballing reason, if your football career is finished, because we all know that football career is very short, you find it difficult to do something after football. Indeed, a football career is short. Thanks to Abrima Kante for that. Lamine Anne, also in the Gambia, thinks that players should be given financial help. Footballers should be given allowances after their career, says Lamine, to let them start businesses and to make life easier for them after football. Amalai Oyake is a licensed players agent at the Concord Sports Agency in California in the United States. This is common even among players outside of Africa, says Amalai. The challenge is the lack of education and personal development. Players should be able to earn degrees through educational outlets. That's a point also made by Sambu One in the Gambia. Footballers should try to learn new skills before retiring from the game, says Sambu One. Sana Jaune, also in the Gambia, believes former players should invest their footballing experience into the next stage of their careers after retiring from the game. For me, says Sana, I think they should involve themselves into football-related affairs like coaching and football administration. As we normally see in Europe, others become football pundits and co-commentators. They should manage their wealth wisely. Karamba Darbo in the Gambia imagines what it would be like to be a recently retired player as he gives his opinion. To my point of view, I would invest in business or buy some part share in a business when I retired from football, says Karamba. And then I could concentrate on that as a source of income. Additionally, I could also become a coach or a football pundit. And finally, K-Boy in the Gambia says, I think our African players who played in the top leagues in Europe or China should invest their money in other opportunities to build a better life after football rather than partying, driving expensive cars, clubbing or adopting a life that doesn't suit you. 
Well, thanks very much for all of those comments. So always great to hear from you. We've got another big question for you this week. How far do you think Africa will go at the 2018 World Cup? We have Senegal, Nigeria, Egypt, Morocco and Tunisia representing the continent in Russia. So will this be a good one for Africa? Can one of the teams get to the semi-finals for the first time? How far do you think that Africa will go at this World Cup? You can go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Well, now as we build up to the 2018 World Cup finals in Russia here on Planet Sport Football Africa, Stuart's put together for us a feature on Africa's history at the World Cup. And he starts off here with the early days of the World Cup and Africa's involvement then. The first World Cup took place in Uruguay, South America in 1930, but the event was completely unrecognisable from what we've become used to in the modern age. As well as the hosts, there were just 12 competing nations, and as air travel was in its infancy, the European teams sailed from France to Uruguay, taking 16 days to get there. It's also the only World Cup for which there was no qualification process, as only 13 teams entered, they were all accepted. No African country entered. Uruguay won, beating Argentina in the final, and one curiosity was that both of the finalists wanted to have a ball manufactured in their own country. So the referee brought out two balls, they drew lots, and the Argentinian ball was used in the first half, and the Uruguayan in the second. In 1934, Egypt was the only African country to enter. To qualify, they had to beat Palestine, which they did home and away. And in the 16-team competition, which was played on a straight knockout basis, Egypt lost 4-2 to Hungary, and their World Cup adventure was over. It was a harsh ending, because Egypt had a perfectly good goal disallowed for offside, and the fourth Hungarian goal seemed to involve a foul on their goalkeeper. In 1938, Egypt was the only African country to apply to compete, and they were drawn in a qualifying competition against Romania. But as the game was scheduled to be played in Ramadan, Egypt refused to play, and Romania were awarded the game and the place in the World Cup. The next World Cup was 12 years later because of the war, and in 1950 it restarted, but no African countries applied to compete. In 1954, Egypt was the only African country again, But to qualify for the World Cup proper, they were drawn against Italy and lost home and away. Incidentally, in 1954, the 16 teams were 12 from Europe, 3 from Latin America and 1 from Asia. So absolutely no sense of a fair representation of the world in those days. In 1958, one place was allocated to either Asia or Africa in a combined qualification group. Egypt, Ethiopia and Sudan all entered what proved to be a farcical qualification process, but Ethiopia was not accepted, Egypt later withdrew, and Sudan progressed well, but then refused to play against Israel, and so no African team made the 1958 World Cup. In 1962, seven African countries contested World Cup qualification, but two withdrew because they refused to play in the monsoon season. 
Morocco emerged from a qualification process, but that didn't get them into the World Cup. It only got them into a playoff with Spain, which they lost. In 1966, FIFA awarded one World Cup place to a combined qualification group of Africa and Asia and Oceania this time, and in protest, all 15 African countries which had been accepted withdrew. In 1970, Africa was awarded one guaranteed place. 14 African countries took part in a three-stage qualification process with Morocco qualifying for the World Cup finals. But at the second stage, Morocco had drawn three times with Tunisia and had only progressed by drawing lots. Playing in the first World Cup, Morocco lost 2-1 to Germany, 3-0 to Peru and drew with Bulgaria and were therefore eliminated. It was Zaire who represented Africa in the 1974 World Cup finals after winning a four-stage qualification process in which they scored 18 goals and won seven of their ten games. It was the first time they had even entered a World Cup qualifying tournament. But when they got to Germany, they found the standard altogether different and they were eliminated, losing all their games, scoring no goals, conceding 14 goals, in fact, as they lost to Scotland, Yugoslavia and Brazil. Yes, and that included a 9-0 defeat to Yugoslavia. That's it for the programme for this week, though. Of course, it's the UEFA Champions League final on Saturday. Liverpool taking on Real Madrid in Kiev in the Ukraine. Uh, What a contest to look forward to. From me, Steve Vickers in Harare from Solomon Ashams in South Africa and Stuart Weir in the UK. Thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.